Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. Now... You may have heard of Titania McGrath, one of the most woke women in Britain. I'd like to introduce you now to her close friend, Andrew Doyle. He's also a comedian and he writes for a few publications, mainly Spiked. He's an Oxford D. Phil, which ought to mean he's no chump. He's also gay and comes from a Catholic Northern Irish family and describes himself as left wing. So he's an unusual mix. He's a literary sort and has written about Orwell and others. He supported Brexit and has a comedy routine about how it lost him all his mates. Now, Andrew, I'm not a regular reader of Spike. The reason you came to my attention is your good friend, Titania McGrath. Are you envious of her success? She's a lot more famous and recognised than I am. Uh, I think it's difficult to be envious of a character that you created, though. And that would make that would be some kind of... It's horrible psychological disorder if I had that. Um, but I'm, you know, pe people are more interested in her than me. Yes, I have to accept that. I bet when you invented her, you didn't expect her to have half a million followers. No, not at all. I, I invented her to entertain myself more than anything. I mean, uh, Twitter is pretty insufferable at the best of times. But, you know, s some of the uh, ludicrous absurdities of, of the, the sort of extreme wing of the social justice ideology because Twitter is their battleground, so that's where you see most of it. If you're active on Twitter, you can't escape it. And I just thought I wanted to, to mock it, to hold it up to ridicule. And <clears throat> the trouble is, if you do that as yourself, they bombard you. They, you know, well, as you know, you know of this thing called cancel culture. They, they know how to mobilise. They do it incredibly effectively. And so using a satirical character through which I could embody their own viewpoints, that was more interesting to me. But I certainly didn't expect it to... To take off it was it was it was more just uh, something to entertain myself she's presented as a po-faced blonde who is this girl the girl is actually a composite of four different women uh, that has been put together much like uh, frankenstein assembled parts of corpses to create his monster that's what's happened there 
Um, although it was a friend of mine, Lisa, who created the image because I can't do that kind of graphic design thing. Uh, but it means that it's not it's not anyone in particular. I, I, I really didn't want this to be a parody of any specific person. I wanted it to, to be a satirical take on a type of person so that it wasn't personal. You know, it, it was more about um, the sort of ideas that she embodies. The po-faced quality is important to me because to me it, it gives the... It, it has the effect of a kind of deadpan delivery of a joke in the way that uh, when she tweets, you look at her face and you can see this this scowling woman who, who's sort of uh, judging You're pretty you. Angry. I'm pretty angry. Or she she's pretty angry. She's pretty angry. Oh yes, she's she's permanently furious. So one of the one of the most defining characteristics of uh, I suppose what we'd call the woke uh, activist type is that they completely lack a sense of humour, actually to the extent that they mistrust humour. They feel that humour in itself and jokes can normalise hatred and normalise uh, uh, um, violence and oppression and all the rest of it. So, so she doesn't have that sense of humour. And she also finds pretty much anything offensive. She can problematise anything. She can, she can make anything out to be homophobic, racist, sexist, misogynist. She can find a way to do that. Um, and she does it very successfully. And the reason she can do that is because that's what everyone else does. I mean, I don't know if you saw the other day uh, a very a, a tweet by um, a, a prominent gardener who was claiming that gardening is inherently racist. The practice of gardening is, has a kind of is, has an inbuilt racism to it. Now that kind of thing is just self evidently absurd. But she would have she would have said something like that. Yeah, but I think I did. I think I did hear about. I don't tweet. Uh, I'm no interest. Very in wise. I can't, I can't understand why you people do. <laughs> Um, well, I, re I think I read about that gardening thing because someone was saying how bloody ridiculous it was. Yes, um, it's it's only ridiculous if you. It might have been me. I've I've uh, commented on that as Titania in a full thread of all the things that have been considered racist over the past six months, and I mean this list goes on and on. It's seatbelts, uh, rocks, uh, school uniforms, um, uh, national parks, the countryside. I don't know if you saw. The BBC put out a, a show talking about how the countryside is racist. So now, now all of this stuff is is self evidently absurd, but it, it, it's derived from this worldview, uh, which we now call critical race theory, uh, which is now sort of seeping into all our major educational media institutions. And it's this idea that everything that racism exists in any human interaction, and so it's not about trying to determine whether a situation is racist or not, it's how did racist ma racism manifest itself in that situation. And the, Now, this would be fine if this was just confined to, to uh, polytechnics, the occasional niche academic department. It's not. It's incredibly mainstream. That's why you have even people like the mayor of London talking about decolonization or systemic racism. They, they use the language of this stuff. It's very, very influential. And people don't understand the extent of it. So for most people, they see a, a tweet saying gardening is racist and you think, well, you know, that's just some idiot on the internet. Well, no, that's actually quite a prominent botanist with a large following who, uh, who has bought into this cultish worldview. It's quite scary. There can't seriously be people who think that gardening is racist. Well, I mean, you, your reaction would be the reaction of the vast majority of people in, the, in, this, in this country. But uh, it, it, there are people who, who, will, who will believe that anything can be a form of oppression. The, the interpretation of, society, of, of anything that exists in society is to do with power. That's what the sort of social justice movement believes, that everything is a manifestation of the will to power. It's one group oppressing another group, and that's, that's all they can see. 
So, so this is why they wish to decolonise curricula. This is why today, I don't know if you saw, there was an article in today's Telegraph talking about how the UK Cartoon Museum is going to revisit its, uh, its displays. And William Hogarth is, has been described as too uh, white, cisgender and male. Um, inevitably, of course, so what does that mean? Are they going to try and find all these various trans, black, lesbian, uh, uh, sat satirical cartoonists of the Georgian era? Are they going to find that? Because I doubt they can. But, but it, it, it feels absurd. It's the same reason why the head of the British Library talks about how they need to decolonise and revisit their manuscript collections, um, re reconsider the statues of their founders, even reconsider the architecture of the building itself, which they now claim resembles a battleship and is therefore colonialist. So all of this stuff does sound like uh, the children have got in charge of the classroom a little bit. Unfortunately, you know, if it, like I say, if it were just a few nutcases on the internet here and there, I wouldn't care. It's the head of the British Library. It's the mayor of London. It's, the, it's many, many top academics and politicians and journalists. So therefore it matters. Why do they do it, do you think? If you read the books, and I've read most of these books, it's part of my job. I have to understand what it is I'm satirising. So I, I read books such as How to Be an Anti-Racist by Imbram X. Kendi or White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, um, the, 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 which is a massive bestseller this year in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. White Fragility, the core it's a core text of critical race theory. The concept behind the book that fundamentally is that all white people are racist, and if they deny that they are racist, that is them uh, exemplifying white fragility, which just pr further proves their, their inherent racism and complicity in, white supremacy, complicity in white supremacy. So in other words, you can't win. It's kind of like a witch trial. Um, but if you read all this stuff, what you realise is that there are lots of people who have been educated in, at higher education level um, that have been trained to see the world in terms of invisible power structures, uh, trained not to see people as individuals, but to see them as part of their racial, sexual or gender demographic. Um, and once you are indoctrinated into that worldview, and it is like a cult, it's a cult because it believes that uh, the world is divided into this binary of good and evil. In other words, you are either morally pure or you are morally impure. Uh, that language creates our reality and therefore needs to be policed and normalised, and that's why they distrust free speech and wish to push for further hate speech legislation and that kind of thing. But, but, and it sounds absurd to us, but if you, if you go to university and that's what you're told, if that's what you're trained uh, to believe through those formative years, then you can't think outside that. I mean, similarly, if you're in a cult and you believe that you have to dance on one leg every Thursday, uh, uh, otherwise Satan will get you, well, it's very difficult to, to talk someone out of that delusion because they it's, it's embedded in their mind by that point and that's what you're dealing with here it isn't so much persuading uh the social justice ideologues and activists out of their delusion it's a matter of de-radicalizing them at this point and that's you know and it's getting harder because they they are now targeting children that's why you have books I, i'm friends with plenty of teachers i used to be a teacher myself books such as white fragility are now creeping into school curricula uh, even at the pr the primary school level, um, colleges like Eton College schools are putting out statements talking about how they need to decolonise and, and all the rest of it. Um, so it's there, and once they get kids, then it's going to be harder to to pull back. A lot of th this movement is based on sloganeering. It's 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 shadow punching. It's they'll use phrases like lived experience or white privilege, and they think that those phrases shut down an argument. They think that those phrases themselves are a substitute for thought, but they're not.
they're just they're just empty slogans um and of course they all repeat each other so you get this kind of illusion that they're you know if you're if you're if you're for instance an academic and you you're a specialist in fat studies for instance right now fat studies is a relatively new example of one of these postmodern social justice style uh, degrees that you can take and what fat studies does is it doesn't uh, analyze the dangers of obese obesity the fact that obesity is that is right up there with smoking as a major cause of cancer in this country what fat studies uh, suggests is that there is no discernible health risk to being overweight and, and in fact this is just another narrative that has been perpetuated by the white supremacist patriarchy you know this is just another power grab in other words. And of course, that's very dangerous, actually, because what they're effectively doing is uh, telling people that it's fine to be absolutely massive. And and it is fine. No one should be shamed for their body size or their body shape. But by the same token, uh, it's unhealthy. It's dangerous. And, it's, and, 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 you know, people need to be told that not, 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 they shouldn't have these truths about reality theorized away by academics who only read each other's books. I mean, they are know-nothings. They don't know anything. They don't read anything beyond their own discipline. And I use the word discipline very loosely. And Titania comes across as one of these. She is very much one of these. She reads all those books. Uh, she writes those books. Um, she is, she's just written a book for children called My First Little Book of Intersectional Activism. She's one of them, you know? She believes that she, she, she believes in this utopian vision of society where if you can just control all the language that people say and all the words that they use and all the, 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 uh, the Overton window of, you know, permissible ideas, then, uh, then we will have our utopian. Everyone will be equal. But she doesn't really want equality. She wants equity. She wants, she wants a, basically a communist utopia. That's what, that's what she believes that can happen. But it's a bit obvious, isn't it? What? I, mean, I find it absurd. Yes. People are saying these things. I find her absurd. Yes. But, I mean, do people take it seriously? I suppose obvious in the sense, it feels sometimes like shooting fish in a barrel, doesn't it? Because, because I suppose what you're saying is that the targets are self-satirizing in a way, insofar as that, you know, they don't need me to poke fun at it. I mean, sometimes I will even simply copy and paste an existing tweet by one of these activists and put it out as though Titania said it. Because there's, sometimes there's a point where I can't invent things that are more absurd than the things that they come up with. Um, but the problem, as I say, isn't, isn't so much that, um, look, 90% of people know that this stuff is nonsense. The trouble is that the 10% uh, the who don't are disproportionately represented in positions of power in major institutions and, and, and as I say, in the media, politics, education, the law, uh, academia, certainly. So they have to dis disproportionate weight in society and that's the problem it isn't that it isn't about the numbers it isn't about the fact that there's so few of them there's few of them they're small in number but they're large in cultural capital that's and that's why you have to challenge them and and satirize them because if you don't um they will win and they will they will have their 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 new society where where people are i mean already people are very scared of speaking openly about what they want to say, any opinion that deviates from the fashionable norm, you can lose your job over it. You can be attacked for it. You can be you can be hounded online. Um, it's it's they're serious people. They're scary people. So I think yes, I think it is probably a bit obvious, um, but I also think it's necessary. 
But haven't you rather missed the boat? I mean, look at this vote at Cambridge in order that there should be freedom of speech. Look at the row at Eton. Look at the decision in that unfortunate child who was going through a sex change. Yeah. Look, look, look at all of those things. They seem to me to suggest that society is getting a lot cleverer than you suggest. Well, those things would suggest... Uh, do you mean that there have been some successes uh, against this ideology, that there have been some pushback? I do. I think that's exactly right. And I think that has come about because people are pushing back against it. I'm not talking about me. I'm not trying to big myself up. But I'm saying that people generally have had enough of it and are, are sick of it. And... Um, and, and it has reached the point where, I mean, look, the problem is it's easy, it's terribly easy to get complacent. So you could say, well, Cambridge University, the governing body just voted overwhelmingly to, to make sure that its free speech policy uh, would not mean that, that people with unfashionable opinions are deplatformed. OK, so, that, so that's a success and that's a good positive thing. On the other hand, Cambridge University over the past few years has had some terrible uh, examples of of of, uh, of no platforming and disinviting people like Linda Bellos, a black lesbian feminist, um, big, because her views are not in line with the woke ideology. Or, for instance, the porter at Clare College. Students last October, students were calling for this man to be sacked because he expressed some opinions about the trans debate outside of the university in his own private capacity, and students were claiming that that, that made them feel unsafe. That's the strategy. I mean, they often do this. So you can you can say, look, this one example of where Cambridge has voted the right way and has, has, has voted for the principle of free speech. Well, that's just one victory amid many, many hundreds of, of failures. And so I think complacency is very is, is a bad idea at this point. Um, you know, for every story you can cite where uh, where the values of liberalism are win out, I can cite you a hundred more where they don't. But when Titania says something as basic and stupid as, I would like to take this opportunity to point out that fascism, genocide and torture are really, really bad. I mean, that, that, that is just so banal, isn't it? Yeah, that's the point. That, that's exactly the kind of tweet that, that, uh, that people online will do. They call it virtue signalling. Uh, uh, mo most of these, act many of these activists will put anti-fascist in their description at the top of their Twitter account. Now, here's the thing. Now, what, what that tweet there is doing is it's mocking this idea that you should need to declare <laughs> that these things are bad. Who isn't anti-fascist? I don't know anyone who isn't opposed to fascism. I, I, I couldn't find you a fascist if I tried. I wouldn't know where to look. The idea that you, you, you should declare, oh, I, I, I just think fascism is appalling. It's so st it's stupid on the face of it. Um, but it's also, it, it implies a kind of moral superiority. But it's based on nothing because because everyone's everyone's opposed to fascism. The, the point of that tweet is deliberately to satirize the banal nature of what we call virtue signaling, you know, where you where you express uh, a point of view simply for the plaudits, simply to see to be seen to be virtuous. But but often it's redundant because what you're saying is it's self-evidently uh, true. What do they make of this performance of yours? in your home community? I mean, you're gay, you're from a Catholic community in Northern Ireland, Bogside, wasn't it? No, that's where my mother's from, yes. My mum's from the Bogside, yes. But but she doesn't read Twitter. She's not on Twitter. My, my, I don't even know if my family know what I do. Um, I, I, I think the gay community certainly 
I would say a lot of gay people are really sick of this stuff now. I think I think early on, it's patronising, isn't it? It's very patronising. I I think there are certainly some uh, people who would describe themselves as LGBT activists who are on board with this uh, this social justice woke ideology, but mo- a lot most of the gay people I know don't want to be patronised. They don't want, for instance, some pink-haired, shrill activist saying, you're not allowed to listen to this speaker who's going to come and talk about same-sex marriage or whatever it might be. You're not allowed to listen to that person because you might be hurt. You might be upset. The words might might offend you. I don't want to be patronised like that. I don't want someone telling me what I can, what ideas I can and cannot listen to. Because if I'm upset or or if I'm challenged by something, I, I'm perfectly capable of retorting, rebutting, challenging myself, even protesting if I want. You know, I don't need to be pampered by by some idiot who doesn't read anything. The problem is that the enemies of wokeness are so often so vile themselves. They're people like Piers Morgan. <laughs> I don't think Piers Morgan is vile. I've only met him three times, but uh, he was very nice to me. Um, I I think I think if you're going to look at the vile. Um, people who are anti-woke, you will be able to find them. Um, and you'll find them, for instance, among uh, the far right and uh, people who have uh, genuinely ghastly views. Um, but that's simply because they are the polar opposite of uh, the identity politics left, you know? I mean, the far... They take it too seriously. If you're not on Twitter, you don't know anything about this rubbish. No, exactly. So what you have is is basically two forms of identity politics. On the left, it takes the form of this kind of identity-obsessed, power structure-obsessed, social justice ideology. On the, on the extreme right, it takes the form of this racist, xenophobic, hyper-nationalist kind of thing. And each of them feed off each other because they... Th- this is why I always say the woke uh, movement or ideology, whatever you want to call it, is, is a real boon for the far right, because they're able to point at that and say, look at all these people trying to censor us, trying to oppress us, trying to, you know, and also they've got the same basic principle, which is that society should be divided up along racial lines, which is the same thing. It just comes in a different, a different form. So I think, um, yeah, there are some unpleasant people who are, for instance, for free speech. Um, but that doesn't mean that the principle of free speech is wrong, just because someone who is a bad person endorses it or pretends to endorse it more to the point. Um, the, 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 the principle is, is much bigger than any one particular person. And in fact, I think it's a real worry to me that the left generally have failed to uphold the principle of free speech, leaving this kind of vacuum for some of the worst elements of the right to seize it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If I were being cynical, and God knows I rarely am, if I were being cynical, I might observe that you have a financial interest in fanning the flames of the culture war. Well, the word that people use is grifter, um, but actually that's not the point. My, I make a living as a uh, comedian and comedy writer and comedy performer. That's how I've made my living for you know, a long time now, 15 years or so. Uh, so it is my job to mock the, the, the things in society that I perceive are wrong. If I get paid for that, that's because that's my job. I mean, it would be, it would be the equivalent. I remember someone accused me of cashing in by writing a book, uh, this comedy book. And I thought, well, you know, when I was a paper boy, was I cashing in by pushing newspapers through people's letterboxes? No, I was, I was doing the job. I was of doing the job. You were. Well, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe it's, maybe it's called having a, a, a form of employment. Well, I would well, look, I think, you know, I, I mean, I've lost work as well by doing this. And it's very difficult to quantify uh, which would be the more financially lucrative uh, route take. I don't agree with you. And the reason being that, yes, I make my living partly off Titania, but partly off my other writing and other things that I do. But I think the cost to that has has been far worse than any short term uh, financial remuneration. I mean, you know, losing all most of my friends considered a, a pariah amongst comedians. This isn't a, a thing that you, you choose to do uh, that you want to happen to you. It's it's you know, I just I just mock what I think is worthy of mockery. And I, I, I expect others to, if people don't like it, they don't, have to, they don't have to listen, do they? Why did you lose these flaky friends? Well, firstly, it's Brexit. That was one thing, because I do, do, could not reconcile the idea of being on the left and voting in support of a uh, neoliberal trading bloc. Um, that, there's that. Um, and, of course, among comedians, I think there were only about four or five who were openly pro-Brexit in the whole country. I honestly can't think of any more than that. So that, of course, already makes you the, the, the kid that at school that everyone's going to bully. That's the first thing. Um, but So I did lose friends over that. I had friends calling me a Nazi and, uh, I mean, to my face, in a pub, uh, old friends as well. So it's, you know, all of that sort of stuff is, is palpably ridiculous. Um, but that does happen. Um, also, since Titania... There's been a real sense of among the comedy community, if there is such a thing, that you shouldn't be mocking uh, the social justice left, that, that that should be left alone because that's, those are the good guys. Well, I don't see them as the good guys. I, I, I see them as actually rather dangerous uh, to society and certainly, to, and certainly a group that are, are making society more racist, enhancing racial division in the name of progress, advancing illiberalism in the name of liberalism. Right. So all of this stuff I think you need to push back on. But because in the comedy industry, there's such a kind of ideological homogeneity, everyone thinks the same way, or everyone at least knows that they have to be parroting the acceptable viewpoints. And that means that if you, if you choose to mock those subjects, then uh, you open yourself up to some quite aggressive uh, attention, you know, from people who were once my friends. I've had them attack me online and write weird blog posts about how evil I am and the rest of it. And it's weird because 
before this character, I was writing another character, Jonathan Pye, for three years, um, which almost exclusively attacked the Conservatives and Donald Trump and the right. That was okay, though. That was okay. It was just when I turned my attention towards the social justice left. That's apparently beyond the pale. It's, it's a, a stupid kind of hypocrisy. Have you seen this survey that, sh that claims that 75% of the comedians appearing on the BBC are left-wing? Yeah. What do you think? I would say that's uh, an underestimation. I think... Um, Has there been any interest from the BBC in Titania or your views on wokeness? Well, I mean, as far as uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a panellist on The Moral Maze and sometimes we talk about that. Sometimes I, uh, uh, I mean, I've, I am trying to develop uh, Titania televisually, but certainly they haven't come knocking. Um, I don't expect, uh, okay, here's what I think. I think there's a lot of good people at the BBC, but there's also a kind of systemic wokeness there. And I don't think that it is, it's not really about left and right. This is what people don't understand. It's not really about that because most comedians aren't actually political, really. What it really is, is about, first and foremost, Brexit, whether you voted Leave or Remain. That's the real uh, sort of, uh, you know, where, where the division is stark, you know. And also to do with this social justice stuff. The industry has very clearly put its stake in the ground and said, we are going to be woke. When, when uh, the 2018 Edinburgh Festival Fringe was launched, the head of the Comedy Awards, Nika Burns, gave a speech talking about how she was looking forward to the new woke world of comedy. Those are her words, not mine. And, and the new generation of young woke comics who are going to set the parameters for what is acceptable to joke about. Now, that is coming from the top, very top, one of the leading figures in the industry. So, of course, everyone else is following suit. Um, and what this means is not that comedians are being censored, but if that you're a young comedian and you find all this stuff utterly absurd, you're not going to joke about it, are you? Because you're not going to get on TV. You're not going to get on the BBC. But what I always say to people is there are other routes other than the BBC, other than ITV. There are, you know, we are now in the Internet age. There are other ways to to develop an audience and you don't you don't need that. I think I think what the 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 new director general has said is right that there does need to be more diversity of opinion because otherwise everyone's just mocking the same targets. More than anything it's just boring. Um but and there are lots of incredibly strong comedians who mock this stuff. I I you know I book a lot of them for the club that I run in in London. So this idea I remember someone at the BBC saying, saying well that well, there just aren't any good non-woke comics. I've I would actually say that some of the best comics in the country are non-woke. It's just that it's not to their taste. That's really what we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I think he's right to to try and do something about the the poor uh, spread of, of, of viewpoints that you get from comics on on the TV. Um, but I don't expect to be invited anytime soon. It's important to get one thing clear. You're not saying that these prejudices, racism and sexual prejudice, you're not saying they don't exist? No. Uh, they're, they're obviously still around. And you around. do put those prejudices wrong? Yes, and I shouldn't have to say it, should I? I mean, it's a bit like what we talk about virtue signaling. Of course I think those prejudices are wrong, and, I'm, and I've always felt that. And I think the liberal approach to tackling... In fact, I, I, I go so far as to say my um, opposition to the social justice ideology is largely driven precisely because I abhor racism, homophobia, discrimination. And I think that this kind of stuff makes those things worse. It generates a lot of resentment. I mean, look what happened after the Brexit vote. Suddenly you had 
figures in the media, I mean talking mainstream figures, basically smearing 17.4 million citizens as racist and evil and diabolical and all the rest of it. This is absolutely outrageous. And what that does is that creates an awful lot of resentment. Um, and, and all of these extremes, these extremities that we see, these gestures, like we're talking about, you know, the, the decolonization of the British Library and all the rest of it, it just alienates people. When white people are told you are all inherently privileged and, and you're, you're complicit from white, in white supremacy, whether you like it or not, how does that help uh, heal a racial division? It doesn't. And I think the liberal solution is the one, is what you do, is you tackle racism robustly wherever it occurs, but you don't uh, assume that it underpins absolutely everything and, and, and without evidence, when the evidence tells you the opposite, in fact. You don't create a, a new pessimistic reality that claims that we live in a nation of, of fascists and, and, and white nationalists, which just isn't borne out by the facts. What's the advantage of that? I, 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 I say it again, it sows racial division. Anti-racism sows racial division. This is why it's very complicated. This is why it needs to be resisted. I wonder if you think there are any lessons to be learned from the period that you grew up in, in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Well, I wasn't there because my mother moved away. Uh, I should, it's a very long, stupid story. So I, I don't know if I should tell you that one. Um, oh, but, <laughs> but, um, long and stupid story, you can forget it. Uh, it is a long and stupid story. Um, the lessons of the past are important. We have to learn. From the lesson. I mean, I think my family's experience, I mean, you've got to bear in mind as well that a lot of my family lived during the Troubles itself, right at the heart of it, you know, right in the Cragen estate in Derry. And they've told me a lot of these stories. I wasn't there, so I didn't have to put up with it. But all of this stuff made me very, very mistrustful of nationalism and division and tribalism. Um, and, and I see that happening in all areas of life now. Uh, and and that really does that really does disturb me. I think learning from the past is key, and and all of the progress that has been made since the civil rights era, since the 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 the, the work of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the luminaries of that of that time, and the gay rights, which has come on incredibly incredibly rapidly, as you know. Uh, I mean, when I was a, a kid, uh, being gay was would make you a complete outcast, you know, and and it, it was fine to be openly homophobic because the teachers were. So so the, the, this massive leaps and bounds that we've made since then. And what concerns me about the way that social justice activists portray the world is they claim that there has been no progress. And actually, we live in a society that is even worse than it has ever been. That's just not true. It, it's, it's, it's demonstrably not true. So why not take a stand against instances of injustice as and when they occur and not try and advance the narrative uh, that we live, in a, we live in a world that was worse than it was in America during the Jim Crow era. What's the point? Because you have to have something to fight for. Well, that could be, that could be right. I mean, I think, for instance, if you take Stonewall, which is obviously one of the, the country's foremost uh, gay rights charities. Well, you know, now that gay rights, gay equality has pretty much been achieved, we've got gay marriage, we've got everything else, we've got equal rights across the board, yes, Again, the caveat, of course, homophobia still exists. Of course, there's instances of homophobic violence, which are, which are appalling and need to be challenged. But really, when it comes to the uh, equality, all those battles were won. And what that means is that they didn't have any battles left to fight. So now it, now it moves into the, the trans debate. Now, the problem with a lot of the, the trans debate is some of the rights, there is a conflict, whether we like it or not, between uh, some of the uh, 
demands of the extreme trans lobby, and I use the word extreme carefully because most trans people aren't on board with this stuff, and the conflict between that and gay rights. For instance, Stonewall has now redefined homosexuality as same gender attractive, not same sex attractive. That's actually a homophobic redefinition because gay people aren't attracted to people who identify as their gender. They are attracted to people who have the bodies, the physicality, the physique of their, of their gender. That, that's what it means to be gay. And people fought for that right for a long time. Similarly, you've got a conflict between gender critical feminists, what we might call second wave feminists, who have fought long and hard to make sure that women could compete in sports, to make sure that women can have their own uh, secure spaces, such as domestic violence refuge centers. And now you have a, 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 a counter movement that says anyone can identify as female and have access to those spaces. Now, whatever you think about that, that's a discussion that needs to be had. And, and it's not, it's not, and it's a conflict that, is, that has been exaggerated and embellished by people who are looking for a cause to fight. So I think what you say is right. A, a lot of the activists I see who, who aren't actually standing up against genuine, authentic instances of injustice, which I would be on board with that. I would be, I would be one of the ones who would want to do the same, but are actually scrapping with ghosts. And, and, and are fighting with, with, with problems that don't exist. And that strikes me as a, a real waste of time. God, you're just living in a different world to me. Well, no, you're right. It's because I'm on social media. Yeah, you care about these things. I couldn't care less. I know what I think is right and I know what I think is wrong. Okay. And I'm not going to be influenced by a bunch of people screaming at me in, this, in cyberspace. <laughs> But you're very well established, if I may say. And if you were... I'm old, you, that's all. <laughs> that helps too. Um, if, if you... You would feel differently, I think. You would feel differently if you were working, say, at a supermarket and uh, you, you, you depended on that source of income. And all of a sudden, uh, a joke that you, you said to someone in the canteen or something was overheard, misinterpreted. And you're up, you're up in front of a tribunal and you might lose your job as a result of it. That's where it starts to matter. Or if you were forced to attend a workshop where you have to have unconscious bias training and have to tease out your inner racism, which is happening across the board, across the private and public sector at the moment. I'm sure you haven't had to attend any of those workshops. Uh, I'm sure you haven't had, had workshops which have told you how you haven't had Robin D'Angelo come in and let berate you for your evil whiteness. Um, but that's happening in major corporations across this country and employers are having to deal with it because if they don't, they'll lose their job. They have to go along with it. So I think you would care a little bit more. Why are the people in charge of these major corporations and government departments and the rest of it, why are they so prone to this moronic behaviour? They are terrified of, of uh, bad publicity. Um, if you, uh, it, it only takes a couple of tweets from angry activists for people to back down happens a lot so you'll see it all the time see because all companies are on twitter now so if you suddenly find it doesn't even have to, have to be many but 20 or 30 activists bombarding your timeline talking about every tweet you post suddenly underneath it says what a transphobe you are what a racist you are what a homophobe you are that's bad publicity and and companies will do anything to avoid that so they would rather capitulate with this stuff even though they may not think it has any validity i'm sure they don't um this is why you have sainsbury's uh, recently posting about how, boasting in fact, about how they were creating online safe spaces for their black employees in the wake of the, the killing of George Floyd, uh, which strikes me as very odd why employees uh, in a UK supermarket would need such, uh, such protection 
after a, a, a tragic event thousands of miles away that had nothing to do with them. So, um, you know, you have um, Sainsbury's and Tesco and whoever, I mean, uh, Ben and Jerry's, you know, they, they sell ice cream for God's sake, but now they're, they're lecturing us about a white privilege and, and whiteness. So but this is tyranny. Well, it's, it's certainly, I wouldn't go so far as to say it is tyranny, but it certainly has the, the hallmarks of, totalitar of the totalitarian mindset. Insofar as it, 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 it is forcing people to articulate things that they know not to be true. And that, that is a, a feature of despotic regimes throughout history. Uh, it also has this, as I mentioned earlier, this binary sense of good versus evil, that, that, that the world is divided, that it's not, you know, the case that the, good, the line between good and evil is, is in the heart of every man. It's that there are, there are goodies and baddies, there are heroes and villains. It, it's reducing the world to pantomime. Um, and so, yes, I don't, I think certainly if we keep going down this road, then there will be uh, elements, or it certainly would sow the foundations for future tyranny. I, I've got no doubt about that. If you, you know, I mean, look at the SNP. I mean, the, 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 Humza Youssef, the Justice Secretary in Scotland, literally saying that you should be able, the state should be able to prosecute you for things you say in the privacy of your own home. Um, trying to introduce a hate crime bill uh, that would criminalise the performance of a play or a, or a comedy act if it was deemed to be stirring up hatred. And how do you decide whether it's stirring up hatred? Well, those in authority decide. Never mind that it's a completely nebulous, subjective term. It doesn't matter. So all of this stuff has consequences later down the road. I mean, you might say, you might trust to common sense and say, well, you know, obviously no one's going to be prosecuted for, for, for you know, a private conversation. Well, they might, you know, I mean, people are prosecuted for jokes. People are uh, arrested, 3,000 people a year arrested for offensive comments they post online in this country. You have the police um, investigating people for non-crime, routinely. I mean, between 2014 and 2019, there were over 120,000 police investigations in England and Wales into non-crime hate incidents. That, it, now, you can just brush that off. Well, firstly, I would say, why have the police got so much time on their hands? But also, if you're investigating someone for non-crime, and then that goes on their record, which it does. So in a few, if you go for another job and you have a DBS check, disclosure bar, barring service check, it shows up. So you might not get the job anymore. That's why it matters. Also, there's the principle, the liberal principle, the police have no business arresting people for what they say or think, and they certainly have no business investigating people for non-crime. doesn't make any sense. Well, you're not going to get me defending the police, so forget it. Sunshine. Right, OK, OK. I didn't expect so. All right. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. It's been an interesting chat. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, there you are. Andrew Doyle, inventor of Twitter icon Titania McGrath. Next week, we've got the former top spy David Omond, who used to run the government's listening service, GCHQ. She'll be a good one. So do join us for that. And in the meantime, stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.